Blog Talk Radio. Good afternoon. This is Larry Simon, Dr. Simon, Larry Simon. Um, and I want to do a show today. I don't know how well this will work out. Um, it's called The Care and Feeding of the Human Soul. And uh, that might be an interesting title. And I tell you what set me off about this. Um, and the show will relate to the last few shows I've done where I've talked about uh, Karen Horney's work and the way in which um, we diminish ourselves uh, when we cut ideas off uh, from, from our thoughts, when we try to squelch emotions, all of which are there to uh, keep us alive and keep us healthy. Um, and as I will suggest, often the most painful emotions, such as guilt or shame, really reflect the, the best part of our souls, or best part of ourselves. And what set this off is a book I'm reading now, and I'm not even sure I'll get through it, because it's a very hard book, by a kind of philosopher uh, um, called a cognitive psychologist by the name of Douglas Hofstadter, and it has a, the, the most interesting title, I Am a Strange Loop. And I'll try to explain a little about what he means by I am a strange loop. Um, I believe that psychology and neurology or brain science are two separate endeavors. Right? Um, I believe, as does this Hofstadter, that the self, the I, in the sentence I have a brain and I have a body, is a legitimate object of study. In fact, it's to me what's critical to study and understand about ourselves, uh, and that all of us are psychologists and spend much of our lives trying to figure out why we said that, why we do that, why we enter into relationships that we thought were going to be work out the best and end up being screwed up, or why... Uh, we end up in a, in, in a temper saying things that we can't take back, but that uh, hurt and sometimes destroy relationships. Um, all of these questions, I think, relate to what is important about psychology, the understanding of the self, understanding of the eye that has the brain. Now, what psychiatry has been doing and a lot of medical uh, science is trying to pretend that the eye is not important that has the brain, that the brain creates the eye, and the eye is of no significance, so that if you are depressed or unhappy, this has nothing to do with a misery related to your sense of self. Uh, I am sad, I am devastated, I hate myself. Uh, these things don't matter. These are merely symptoms of a brain that's dysfunctional. And by the way, next week I'm going to have as a guest on my show, if she doesn't have to uh, go on the road, uh, a woman by the name of Grace Jackson, who wrote a book called Rethinking Psychiatric Drugs. Uh, wonderful book, and she is one of the most brilliant people I know. And uh, tell all your friends, uh, if you hear this before, join us at 4 o'clock next week for a discussion about what these drugs ultimately do to your brain and yourself. Um, and... and uh, uh, you'll think twice before taking these drugs again. Uh, she really is, is quite passionate, uh, cares about people, but she's like an encyclopedia 
and she follows all the research. Really terrific. I look forward to, uh, if it's not next week, certainly when she gets back in a couple of weeks from her trip. Uh, she's uh, going to be a uh, witness in a trial involving the damaging of some poor child with Ritalin. But anyway, Hofstadter talks about, asks the question, what's the relationship between the eye and the brain? Now, he talks about the soul as I do. And we both mean something very different about the soul than uh, do people who are religious. And I'm going to tell you right now that I believe that when my brain dies, anything related to myself or my soul goes with me. That's the end of it. I, this is my belief. I can't prove this, but something very deep in me tells me that this is so. I think I mentioned that my surgery that I had a month ago, and I quipped with the doctor, he didn't know I was even kidding, that the, I will not let the, anti, uh, the uh, anesthesia put me under. Myself would be there no matter what he did. And 30 seconds later, I was gone, and that raises a question, where did I go? Uh, and the self somehow returned. I returned to consciousness. I became aware of my body. I became aware of the room and everything around me, uh, and my wife nervously uh, waiting for me to come up, wake up uh, because she knows that uh, the, the biggest danger in most surgeries, including open-heart surgery, is not the surgery, as long as you uh, have a competent surgeon, uh, it's the anesthesia. Anesthesia causes more damage. And so where did I go? Well, he shut down the centers of my brain that in some mysterious way, and Hofstadter says it's some kind of an interesting loop process, a complex of the entire brain uh, uh, functioning in a way to create these loops that produce consciousness. Now, he's not saying that the brain produces these loops and produces this consciousness, which he equates to the soul. Uh, he says that it happens and that it's essentially a part of us and it matters because what I decide to do matters. If I decide to uh, drink, if I decide to uh, uh, make love, if I decide uh, to take a gun and shoot ten people, all of these things matter. I can be held responsible uh, and not my brain, even though it's my brain that produces the, the, the self. Or, in his words, the soul, and I'll get to my view of the soul, which is slightly different than his. In any event, uh, I don't believe that when my brain finally does die, anything will be left over except in the memory of other people. And one of the reasons I try to live the way I do and live a good life and make as few enemies as possible is that uh, I do want to be remembered. I think it's one of the reasons I do this show. I know it's one of the reasons I write books, and when I see them in a library, it gives me a tremendous pleasure uh, because I think there's a very good chance that those uh, books will be around and maybe even read for many, many, many years after my body and my mind, the I that has the brain, uh, go and disappear. Uh, Hofstadter really equates soul, and he, again, he is agreeing with me, or we agree together, that nothing is left over. I mean, there's no religious soul. There is no extra uh, uh, ordinary matter. There is no soul stuff or mind stuff. No matter how we feel that we are in control of our lives and we make decisions, uh, it's not that our heads are inhabited 
by this eye or self you, or soul. You can't look into a head and see a soul. Uh, no matter what test they give you, or what, what brain scan or, or MRI or EEG, electroencephalogram, they're never going to see a soul. What they will see instead is brain activity that somehow uh, creates uh, our soul or our mind. Now, I believe that I is a bigger concept than soul. I think soul is that part of us that we protect the most. It's the center of the self. It's the part that hurts the most. And when we seek to really hurt somebody, when we call somebody really bad names, when we diminish somebody, we call somebody a racial slur or a religious slur, uh, when we wrap up somebody's entire identity in a single word, you are a schizophrenic, uh, uh, what we're doing then is attacking that part that's central to them and what's important to that individual. We want to maximally hurt them uh, by destroying that soul. And the reason I think we hide our souls, see, we don't hide all of ourselves, but we hide the center, the most important part, is really because so many of us, if not all of us, have spent so much of our lives uh, being assaulted, if you will, being told we're no good. And again, let me, let me, let me say something about that. It's true that I spent my life dealing with a select group of individuals. Nobody ever came into my office because they were happy, really happy-go-lucky or uh, felt content in their own skin. The people I saw were in emotional misery. Their lives were in great, great trouble. And the hard part, the hard part uh, of, of their struggle to restore their lives and their souls was to confront the things that others had told them about themselves and separate out the fantasy that other people had of them with the things that they themselves had actually done wrong, hurtful to others. You know, I think I mentioned this before. One of my favorite cartoons, and I lost it when I moved, is there's two guys, and one is standing over the other, and it's obviously knocked them down. And the guy on the floor who has stars swimming over his head, like you see in cartoons, says to him in return, he says, okay, okay, you're the victim. Yeah, the truth is that when we are victimized, when we are diminished and we believe this diminishment, and when we try to hide ourselves from the best part of ourselves, we diminish our souls. But I think that the person who attacks you, or when you attack another, or I attack another, and we call them names, we diminish our own souls, you see. We're doing it to put them down below the pain and, and the level we think we're at. And then an interesting thought, that in order, to, uh, uh, in order to be better, we can either grow and allow our own souls and selves to flourish, or we can try to mutilate and make tiny the souls of others. And I don't believe that any time we call somebody some terrible name, uh, it's not because what we select is not because we ourselves fear that very thing. I'll give you an example. Um, it was very important to me growing up to be seen as smart, be very intelligent. And as a result of certain aspects of my education and my life, I thought I was intelligent, I thought I was smart, but deep down I thought I was stupid. And I realized that part of my competitiveness with others and the reason I could get really nasty with others 
was because I myself doubted my own intelligence. Uh, I was never particularly worried about uh, sports. Uh, I know a lot of other people whose whole sense of self is to protect the idea that they're not a good athlete. Uh, but for me, that was that the idea. I was not intelligent enough. And that meant I wasn't intelligent enough to be admired, to be loved, to be respected. And that diminished my soul. Because when I would put down a student, uh, uh, I was diminishing me more than that student. Although I don't want to uh, make it sound like I wasn't really hurting that student. And the student I would try to put down would pretend that uh, this had no meaning to him. And so his reaction uh, to my reaction, to my pain, see, it, it, one goes around, comes around, um, his reaction further diminished him because now he couldn't deal uh, openly with what I had said because obviously, whether he liked it or not, he believed it because I, as a professor, as a teacher, uh, like parents, have a real power with children. And so, so many years ago, this goes back many years, I vowed never to call anybody stupid. I vowed uh, never to say to anybody that uh, I'm going to call them those kind of names. I haven't always kept to it, uh, but I've really tried. And I think that is essential, that in the care and feeding of our soul, the more open we are to the differences in other people, the more open we'll be to ourselves. And the more we're open to others, the more they will accept us for who we are. And when we are accepted this way, our own souls flourish because we don't have to hide them. We don't have to stifle them in the dark. We don't have to split them off. We don't have to repress them. We don't have to cut them off. Um, every once in a while, I'll hear about some men who beat up a gay. Uh, they want to kill the fags. I don't know why they don't want to go out and kill murderers. Why are they willing to kill a fag? I think for the same reason that I was fearful of being stupid, they are fearful of their own masculinity. I do believe that. And by cutting off their fears, by not accepting the feminine side of them or the softer side of them, they become incapable of friendship. Everything becomes bluff. Everything becomes overpowering. Everything becomes a, a need, as Horn I put it, the need for mastery. And this sets in motion what she calls the vicious cycle. The more they put others down, the more their own masculinity uh, remains and grows in doubt. And this vicious cycle brings about the very thing that they're afraid of. My uh, uh, putting people down for not being intelligent enough was the very thing that increased my growth of, of, of the lack of understanding that I had and, and I suppressed my own soul. So again, I don't believe the soul is in any way anything related to religion. I think it's all brain activity. But that brain activity uh, gives rise to all kinds of, of notions of self. Uh, I don't think the self or the soul is there at birth. Well, pieces of it. Uh, I certainly don't believe it's there at conception. Uh, Hofstadter makes a brief uh, reminder of that. Um, I think that the size of a person's soul changes. Um, Hofstadter talks about the growth of the soul, so that or the self, 
that uh, when we are a, a, a two-month-old fetus, I don't believe there is any self. Uh, and I think my own religion, which supports under certain circumstances a woman's right to choose over the evil of an abortion. And by the way, I do believe that abortion is not a very good thing. I think it's a bad thing. Uh, I certainly don't think it should be used in anything except a real emergency, uh, an emergency in life. Uh, I certainly don't think that it should be denied a person uh, because the fetus has a soul. That's a religious notion, and as I say, I reject it. The soul grows. There is a potential of soul, but then there's a potential of soul in all kinds of things, uh, including uh, sperm and ova. And uh, we get rid of those from our body in a variety of ways. Uh, so that potential of soul um, uh, it, it becomes unrealized. Uh, but it's a potential. And under the right circumstances, I believe a woman has a right to choose and to prevent the woman from choosing or a family from choosing in consultation with their doctor, to me, is a, a bigger destruction uh, than a fetus that, to me, doesn't have a soul. At birth, we have a soul, and then if you watch a child grow, particularly in the light of love, in the light of learning and education, the soul grows larger. Okay? I think other animals have souls, a sense of I, and even a soul. Um, uh, I, I went with my grandchildren last week, and we went to this puppy store uh, down here in Florida, and they have the cutest little puppies. And you can see the love in these puppies' eyes, how desperate they are to be held and cuddled and played with. And um, I think that Americans do tend to see dogs, particularly their pets, as extensions of children. And would be horrified as, for example, in Thailand where dogs and cats are not pets, uh, they're kept outside if they're kept at all, and, and if the situation is right, they're eaten. Uh, for most Americans, eating a dog is similar to eating a, a, uh, a baby because it has a soul. Uh, Hofstadter talks about the fact that he is a dyed-in-the-wool vegetarian. He believes cows and pigs and even chickens have souls. A soul of a chicken is much smaller. The sense of self of a chicken is smaller than that of a pig or a goat or a cow. Uh, probably pigs are the smartest of barnyard animals. They're quite intelligent, even though we call them pigs. Uh, at the top of the scale is the human being. Right? But that's a potential, too. And so uh, the human being who grows with a full soul, an open soul, uh, who doesn't diminish his own soul or try to diminish the souls or destroy the souls of others, uh, is an individual who is quite different than somebody who's all dried up inside, full of anger and hate and spite, and only wants to get even with the rest of the world in some violent or, or uh, verbal way and inflict pain on others uh, every chance he or she gets, including sometimes their own children, uh, their own loved ones. Uh, they diminish themselves. Their soul and their mind, their sense of self, gets smaller. And they know it. And they know it. Although I suppose there's a point at which Somebody can be so small a soul that they don't know it. They don't even have any ability to feel or resonate with the pain they call in others or the pain uh, that uh, 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 in themselves it's all covered over, crusted over, and I've spoken about this before. 
So, uh, I think that uh, uh, I'm not sure I have more to say about this. I'm not sure anybody is really listening, although I've been doing pretty well on the, on the uh, downloads. I don't know how long people listen, uh, but I'm sort of getting a following by this. And um, uh, uh, this is important for me. This opens my soul and uh, bears my soul and helps me think clearly about uh, my relationships uh, with others and myself. What else can I say about the soul? Um, what I say about the self. Uh, I don't believe that anybody has ever helped to uh, grow their soul with drugs. I think most drugs uh, shut down various aspects of self. The eye is diminished, and along with it, the soul. The soul is papered over. Uh, uh, people who drink heavily to reduce pain, uh, people who take lots of drugs, and in this, you know, I, I, it's one of my favorite themes. Uh, when the moment you step into the wrong professional's office and they look at your soul and can't see it, all they can see is a brain that in almost every case is perfectly healthy and want to give you powerful, powerful drugs to shut down that brain's activity and hence shut down the activity of the eye, its ability to make choices, its ability uh, uh, to uh, open up and grow the soul and feed the soul in truth, in air, in light, in seeking out open, non-critical, uh, sad, just relationships. It's amazing how violence shrinks the soul of both the perpetrator and the one who is violated by that act, those actions. Whereas... Uh, uh, respectful conversation, uh, the opening of your mind to a good book, like a Hofstadter book, the, the, uh, the title again, uh, I Am a Strange Loop. I got this out of the library. Um, again, I'm not sure I'm going to finish it because it's a tough book to read. There's nothing easy about this book to read, but certainly it challenges my mind. It challenges my sense of self to understand. Uh, you know, it's an interesting idea here. Uh, we think that when we understand the brain, we'll understand psychology. And I don't believe that's so. I think we'll understand psychology by studying and, and understanding ourselves and others. What we say, what we do, the context of life, by speaking our history to others uh, in a way that's not filled with self-pity, but that reveals uh, who we are as a human being, that reveals the soul. That grows the soul. It, it, it's, it's a breath of air, breath of freshness. Uh, on the other hand, I think the study of the brain is very useful, and especially if there are things wrong in the brain that diminish the soul, because that happens all the time too. Uh, I think that the illness more people of my age are terrified of, uh, including arthritis and cancer, is Alzheimer's, because Alzheimer's starts by destroying the higher brain centers that allow the self and the I to exist. And it's, it's a tragic, terrifying event for the person going through it. And after they're too gone and too diminished to know that they were there and that they're still uh, alive, they now have a much smaller self and a much smaller soul. Uh, it becomes a terror for those who watch them disappear. And again, they don't watch the brain disappear, even if they know that's happening. They're watching a loved one, another human being, disappear. 
And this is as painful as anything I understand. I learned years ago that people will go uh, to see a cancer specialist sometimes more quickly than they'll go to see a, a, uh, a psychiatrist or a psychologist uh, because the belief that there's something wrong with your body, however terrifying, is nothing, I believe, compared to the terror of thinking you're going to lose yourself. The I will disappear and the soul along with it. So uh, I think that you have to understand the, the, the psyche and the soul through discussion and the brain by studying brain activity, but you're never going to understand the psyche and the soul by studying the brain. Those things that are diseases, yes, uh, but not the soul itself, not the psyche itself. So it depends upon the brain. And in fact, uh, I, there's a wonderful philosopher named Thomas Nagel who says that the day we really understand how the brain produces consciousness, how the self, how the sense of I comes into existence out of brain activity, it will be a tremendous advancement in the field of physics. Something brand new will occur because so far as we know, only in human beings does inanimate matter, namely the brain and all of its activity, produce something as wondrous and exciting as I owning a brain. I that turn my attention back on my body and my brain and myself and my soul. Uh, so that could be a very interesting thing. But even after that's done, while I'm sure the psychiatrists and the doctors and political enemies and people who would like to control humanity will find wondrous ways of controlling the self by controlling the brain. And I think that's what many are working on, and it's one of the terrors I have. And in fact, I've got to do a show sometime in the future about that very topic, that uh, what we're going to see is mind control through brain activity. But as long as the brain is left sacrosanct, uh, it's the soul that we care about. It's the mind that we care about if we're interested in psychology, if we're interested in what is in the heart of people. So I hope you avoid those vicious cycles. Uh, I hope you find the love and the comfort to yourself and others that will allow the soul to, to grow and to become uh, uh, open and uh, a source of joy and pleasure for yourself and everyone around you. Uh, this is Larry Simon. And this is the stories we live by. And I think I've told an interesting enough story. You'll let me know. Take care and goodbye.